Hello, this is the 36th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society for Haematology. This podcast covers the guideline on the investigation and management of acute transfusion reactions. This podcast has been recorded over Zoom and we apologise for any loss in sound quality that may occur. I'm Dr Richard Souter. I'm a consultant haematologist working at the Beetson Oncology Centre in Glasgow and have also worked for many years with the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service. I'm going to undertake this podcast today with Dr Catherine Booth, who is a consultant haematologist working for NHS Blood and Transplant and also with the BARTS Health NHS Trust. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the guideline on a question and answer basis. This guideline is actually the revision of a previous guideline that's been updated with to review the literature, but also we had a few key objectives that we hoped to achieve and hope that we have achieved. These were to produce a flow diagram to aid in recognition of acute transfusion reactions and their immediate clinical management. Secondly, we hope to advise on the further management of the patient during the reaction. Thirdly, we hope to provide advice on investigations. Fourthly, to discuss management of subsequent transfusions. And finally, to present recommendations for reporting adverse reactions to UK hemovigilance organisations, to blood services and within the hospital. We hope to have achieved this in a multidisciplinary way. The other authors of the guideline include a transfusion practitioner, Wendy McSporin, and also senior biomedical scientists, Tracy Tomlinson and Sharon Gray. We hope this multidisciplinary approach is of benefit to all professionals involved in the transfusion process. And now we'll move into the next part of the podcast with a question and answer session where I'll ask the questions and Dr. Booth will hopefully provide the answers. So, Kath, welcome. Thank you. How would you define an acute transfusion reaction? It's an empirical definition of any reaction occurring within 24 hours of transfusion of blood or blood components. In a guideline, we mainly concentrate on new symptoms developing during the transfusion. And that's why it's so important that any patient receiving a transfusion is in an area where they can be directly observed and where staff are trained in blood administration. Also important to remember that reactions can develop hours, days, or even weeks after a transfusion. So patients need to be asked to report any symptoms that they develop after a transfusion is completed. Thanks, Kath. How would you approach a patient having an acute transfusion reaction? So just like approaching any unwell patient, it all comes down to history and examination. So first message is if any patient develops new symptoms or signs during a transfusion, you should pause the transfusion, uh, but maintain venous access. And that's an opportunity to check their identification details uh, on the, the unit against the patient and their identity band to ensure the right unit's being given to the, the right patient. 
then we're going to take into account the patient's symptoms and signs, because that's what's going to direct the initial treatment of the acute reaction. So we can broadly define reaction types into febrile, which can involve symptoms such as a fever, rigors, myalgia, uh, or nausea, allergic type reactions, which could be a rash, itching, facial swelling, or wheezing, and then respiratory type symptoms, which is new breathlessness or oxygen requirement. And you're also going to take into account the severity of those symptoms. And at this point, the, the clinical context is also really important. So the, the, the patient's observations before they started the transfusion and um, the reason that they're in hospital. Thanks, Kath. Um, we read a lot about severity of reactions, mild, moderate, severe. Is there anything you can help our listeners in terms of definitions of the severity? Uh, so a severe reaction is really anything causing a significant impairment of airway, breathing, circulation. Examples might be severe dyspnea, um, hypotension, which could be associated with stridor or wheeze, um, or associated with other febrile type symptoms. So really, it's, that's a, a clinical definition. More easily defined are the mild reactions, which would um, include an isolated rise in temperature with no other symptoms. So that's um, a rise in temperature of less than two degrees or just a, a rash or itching with no other allergic type symptoms. So what would you do for a severe transfusion reaction? So most importantly, these patients require immediate medical review and then medical management directed to the presenting symptoms. So for example, if a patient's hypotensive with stridor or wheeze, you might suspect anaphylaxis, which requires treatment with adrenaline. If a patient has a severe febrile reaction, a fever associated with shock, you'd be concerned about the possibility of acute hemolytic reaction or possible bacterial infection. And then um, a patient with severe breathlessness without other allergic features could be suffering transfusion-associated circulatory overload, that's TACO, or much more rarely, transfusion-related acute lung injury, TRALI, um, or transfusion-associated dyspnea, which is TAD. So those patients should receive oxygen while awaiting a medical review. What about a less severe transfusion reaction? So it's essential to tailor your treatment to the, the presenting symptoms that the patient has. So for mild reactions, it's often possible to continue the transfusion after appropriate assessment and um, symptomatic treatment. Uh, so, for example, a small temperature rise, but with no other symptoms, could be treated with oral paracetamol. Mild allergic features, so just a, a rash, could just be managed by slowing the transfusion and maybe by giving an antihistamine. Corticosteroids shouldn't be used routinely because their onset of action is delayed and they're unlikely to have any benefit in an acute reaction. If the, the patient has more moderate symptoms, so um, additional symptoms above just a small temperature rise or a rash, it's important that they have a medical review before continuing the transfusion, that 
you consider the, the context and what was happening before the patient's transfusion and that um, if you do restart the, the transfusion and the symptoms persist or worsen, that you then stop and manage the same as you would a severe reaction. Thanks. We've discussed quite a lot about immediate assessment of the patient, the, the history, the examination. But as we know, investigations are an important component to all hematological practice, including transfusion medicine. So what investigations should be sent in the patient experiencing an acute transfusion reaction? So if a transfusion reaction has been severe enough that you've had to stop the transfusion completely, a baseline set of basic investigations as for any critically ill patient are helpful. That would include a full blood count, renal function, liver enzymes, and if there are respiratory symptoms that aren't felt due to allergy, a chest x-ray. Further investigations beyond that are going to be tailored to the type of reaction the patient's having. So for a severe febrile type reaction, those units should be re returned to the laboratory for further investigation. And you want repeat samples from the patient for compatibility testing, blood cultures, and then um, assessment of the urine for hemoglobin. If there's a suspicion of bacterial infection, the blood service should also be contacted so that they can arrange a recall if necessary. If a patient only has allergic features, there's no need for repeat compatibility testing. But if there's a possibility of anaphylaxis, but the symptoms aren't classical, serial measures of serum tryptase can be helpful. If a patient has respiratory symptoms that aren't felt due to anaphylaxis or allergy, it's helpful once they've recovered to have investigations for left atrial hypertension. So that'd be echocardiogram or uh, an NT pro BNP, because that can help to later classify the type of respiratory reaction for hemovigilance reporting. You've alluded to communication there. As we know, good communication is critical to effective clinical care. So who needs to know about transfusion reactions? As soon as the patient's been medically managed and stabilised, it's important to let your blood transfusion laboratory know about the reaction and they'll be able to give you further instructions. Your transfusion team, which is likely to include your transfusion practitioner or maybe your on-call haematologist. And then, as I've mentioned, the blood service would need to know if a, a recall might be required. So that would be in potential bacterial infection or suspected trolley. Hopefully the acute transfusion reaction is a single event, but as we know, they can be recurrent. What causes these recurrent reactions? It's not clearly understood um, what causes transfusion reactions. Febrile reactions might be due to residual white cells in the donor unit or cytokines that are built up during storage. Allergic type reactions are likely directed against proteins in that donor's plasma. But we recognize that recipient factors like their current clinical status and any allergic propensity are also important. And, and what if a patient has recurrent reactions? It's important to realize that that's uncommon. So most patients experiencing one acute transfusion reaction won't react again if they're giving a further transfusion. 
if they do, again, the treatment has to be targeted against the type of reaction they've experienced. So for patients with recurrent febrile reactions, you can try pre-medicating with oral paracetamol an hour before the anticipated reaction. A non-steroidal might be another option if they've had chills or rigors, if there aren't any contraindications. If they continue to have febrile reactions in spite of that, you can try washed blood components. There is no role for a prophylactic antihistamine or corticosteroids if there haven't been any allergic symptoms. If a patient has had recurrent allergic reactions, there isn't good evidence to support a benefit for routine pre-medication, but you could try a prophylactic antihistamine before transfusion as it's a low-risk treatment. It's not recommended to give routine prophylaxis with corticosteroids because their slow onset of action is unlikely to give the patient any benefit. If previous reactions were to apheresis platelets, try a pooled platelet, as these are resuspended in platelet additive solution and have the majority of the plasma removed. If the patient still reacts, you can try washed red cells or platelets. It's always important to remember if a patient's had previous reactions and usually receives pre-medication or a special component, but they need blood urgently, transfuse standard components and monitor them closely. Don't delay a necessary transfusion waiting for a special unit. I've heard about IgA deficiency and its potential link with acute transfusion reactions. Would you like to discuss that? Is it important? So there has been an association made between severe congenital isolated IgA deficiency. So that means an IgA level of less than 0.07 grams per litre and anaphylactic reactions possibly associated with anti-IgA antibodies in the recipient. But the evidence for any link is very weak. And actually, haemovigilance data suggests there might rather be an association with febrile type reactions, particularly with predominant inflammatory type symptoms. So we would suggest measuring IgA levels if a patient have has, has had an anaphylactic reaction or recurrent severe inflammatory febrile reactions particularly in the first 15 minutes of transfusion. If you incidentally have picked up IgA deficiency, which is not uncommon, the vast majority of those patients will receive a transfusion with no reaction. So they can receive standard blood components just with increased frequency of monitoring, provided they've never had a, a history of a blood transfusion reaction. If someone has a severe IgA deficiency and has had previous transfusion reactions, we'd recommend washed components. But again, if they need a blood transfusion in an, um, an emergency, they should receive standard components with closer monitoring. Thank you. Is there anything else that we need to do as clinicians after a significant acute transfusion reaction? We've already mentioned the importance of informing the transfusion team in your hospital. And that's because they will collect the reports locally so that they can monitor any trends and learn from management. 
And they will also report any reactions apart from the mild febrile or allergic reactions to um, regulatory organisations, which is a mandatory requirement, and also to haemovigilance organisations. And that's so we can learn about patterns of acute transfusion reactions at a national level. Thank you, Kath. That brings this question and answer section of the podcast to an end. Podcasts are fantastic, but they're sometimes difficult to get over the visual components of a guideline. And I would recommend listeners to have a a look at the guideline, particularly for the flowchart that's there in a visual form, easy to access, that should hopefully facilitate your management and approach to the patient with an acute transfusion reaction. Well, well, I hope, dear listener, that you've uh, enjoyed this podcast. We've uh, attempted to review this updated BSH guideline. I would recommend the guideline to back up uh, what we've discussed. As authors, we have tried to split it into an easy-to-read guideline hopefully not too long, with lots of subsections and recommendations to facilitate getting the most out of it. We would like as authors to thank the support that we received from the BSH Transfusion Task Force, the BSH Sounding Board, the BSH Guidelines Committee, and also the British Journal of Haematology who've published this guideline for their extremely useful feedback and advice which have strengthened what we've discussed and what we've written. There are many references in the guideline that we hope will also be of benefit. So finally, I would like to thank you all for your time and for listening wherever you are. And the guidelines are available at the BSH website at b-s-h.org.uk where you can not only find the guidelines but also more informative podcasts produced by the British Society for Haematology for you on many haematological topics. So from Dr Booth, myself and the co-authors of our guideline, Wendy McSporran, Tracy Tomlinson, and Sharon Gray. Thank you for your attention and I hope you continue to enjoy and benefit from these BSH podcasts.